I think part of what some of the criticism is about is actually measurement. We don't think you're measuring this well. And that's not an RCT thing. It's an absolutely valid point of discussion of are we picking an outcome that actually is about people's, that properly represents people's lives. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. There's considerable and growing attention and interest on understanding what works, where, how, and why in development. This also means there are numerous debates on how best we ought to generate evidence and measure development success and impact. One way of measuring development impact is through randomized controlled trials or RCTs, which have been very useful for establishing causal relationships and providing robust and reliable evidence for evaluating the effectiveness and safety of various programs. While some regard RCTs as the gold standard, others are more critical of using it to measure what works. Critics argue that it is not just about what works, but why things work, which should be prioritized when designing effective policies and interventions that can be scaled up. Another related aspect in this context is the generalizability puzzle. That is, whether the results of a specific program can be generalized to other contexts. For example, there are questions about whether a study can inform policy only in the location in which it was undertaken. Should policymakers mainly rely on whatever evidence is available locally, even if it is not of very good quality? There is also the question of whether a new local randomized evaluation should be undertaken before an attempt to scale up and the number of times such evaluations should be repeated before scaling up. These are some of the issues I discussed with Rachel Glenister, who argues that a key part of figuring out which problems to solve is understanding which questions to ask and how to answer them. Rachel is an associate professor of economics at the University of Chicago. She uses randomized trials to study democracy and accountability, health, education, microfinance, and women's empowerment, mainly in West Africa and South Asia. She spent 13 years as the executive director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, JPAL, which is a key leader in popularizing RCTs in development economics. Thereafter, she served as chief economist of the United Kingdom's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rachel Glenister. Rachel, it's lovely to see you. Uh, it's been a while because I've been trying to get you on the show for a long time. We're finally here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. And sorry it's taken a while, but I've been doing a lot of traveling, so which is an inevitable part of being a development economist. All of us interested in development are interested in understanding what works, what doesn't work, right? These are things that we grapple with every day. 
And I noticed, Rachel, that you've argued in the past that a lot of development programs fail because we are trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. So let's start by discussing whether we are asking the wrong questions. And even if we ask the right questions, Rachel, are we failing to answer those properly? Yes. So great to be here. Uh, Great to dig into some of these questions. Some of them are very big. I just want to preface by saying it's inevitable that some project, some development projects will fail and some won't fail. And you should really think about this as a portfolio of of tries, like we're working in very difficult situations, often in development, you know, going in at the end of a civil war or something. So, so not everything is going to work. But to give us the best chance of something working, we should at least understand the situation before, you know, if, if particularly if you're an outsider coming in and trying to give advice, it's really important that you do as much of work as possible to understand the situation before you ever start trying to, to, to give people advice. And I think that might be, you know, might be why sometimes people are trying to solve the problem that isn't actually the right problem. And, and some basic descriptive data can really help with that. To give some examples, there was a lot of focus for a very long time on getting more children into school, which, of course, is really important, and there were huge gains in that. But to some extent, the policy process kept going, focusing on getting girls in school, and there are many places where girls are out of school and we need to work on that. But in a lot of places around the world, the biggest problem now is not getting kids in school, it's helping them to learn. And so just getting basic descriptive data about how much children are learning and really going in and understanding what's happening on the ground, you suddenly realize, you know, we ought to be shifting our focus towards more focus on getting children learning in schools rather than just getting children into school. Yeah, it's not that I think it's a, that that's an example of it being wrong, but it is a an example of where I think too much development focus, kind of because of the legacy that this was the problem. And you you, you needed to shift the focus to what is now the biggest problem. Do you think some of this is because we've been struggling to get money to do development, that it was about trying to get funding? And that was what we were obsessed with, rather than thinking also how that money can be best put to use? Inevitably, people are worried about how do you get funding, and sometimes that distorts, you know, you want to tell a very simple story to be able to try and raise funding, and development is really simple. I mean, policy is really simple anywhere. It's not that development is more complicated than anti-poverty programs in the US. I mean, it's all complicated. So, but raising money often requires simplifying things. I think it's also this, just this legacy sort of, you know, it takes a while to get people, you know, get a very broad spectrum of people to understand what is the problem. And then there's a bit of an overhang. People still, still keep trying to solve a problem, which was a bit, you know, last year's problem. And again, I'm not saying all girls are in school and we should stop worrying about that. I'm saying it's in very specific locations and very specific girls now. And we, and in terms of the, you know, the broad spectrum of what we should be working on, a lot more attention needs to be going into learning. And it's a bit like kind of moving the Titanic. You've got to 
<laughs> you know, it takes a while to to change people's focus. In trying to understand what works, why, where, how, but most importantly, why, there are all of these debates, right, on how best we should generate evidence. How should we best measure development success? How should we understand impact? So let's talk about the randomized control trials, RCTs, that are often considered to be the gold standard for, for measuring success. You know, you are talking about somebody who receives a certain benefit, somebody doesn't, and then you compare these groups to see if a program has had an impact, an effect on people's lives. But RCTs are also one of those controversial techniques. And there are all of these people saying that is not the best way to go forward. So why do you believe that RCTs are one of the best ways of measuring development impact? And not least, I've also heard you say that it is also important in terms of understanding cost effectiveness of development projects and implementation. So first of all, let me be really clear. I have I would never say that RCTs are a gold standard. Okay. Indeed, when I was in JPAL, I somebody pointed out to me I didn't succeed, but I certainly tried to make sure that nowhere on the JPAL website did we say that RCTs are a gold standard. That was never what any of us who were promoting the use of RCTs wanted to say. We always thought it was one of many methods. All the people that I work with who do RCTs Put a lot of effort and time into thinking about that scoping on the ground of understanding the situation on the ground and that can be using qualitative methods it can be using descriptive data sort of range of of instruments but but what we did believe is that there was more of a role for using randomized control trials in development than than was the case you know, back in, in 2000 and 2003, when JPAL was started. And the reason for that, why, what do they bring to the table? They're not the gold standard, they're not the only approach, but what do they bring to the table? The thing they bring to the table is the ability to separate out the causal impact of a very specific intervention, right? A very specific program or policy and Normally, when policies or programs are implemented, lots of other things are changing at the same time, and it's very hard to distinguish what the impact of that policy change was from a lot of other things going on. And it's useful to know causality because if you want to draw policy conclusions, you want to know, well, yeah, if you lives improved, but was it because of the policy or was it because of something else? Yeah. So if you're trying to design policy in the future, you'd like to know that answer. Understanding what the problems are is just as important because you don't want to, you can spend a lot of time trying to fix a problem that wasn't a problem to start with. You start with that. And then the next stage, in a sense, when you've got some hypotheses, is to test whether a very specific program actually improves lives. I think one of our one of the reasons we thought it was important to do this was you know there was a lot of correl correlational evidence out there there was a lot of development work going on saying the kinds of countries that grow are like this that doesn't you know there's a lot of growth regressions which said these kinds of countries grow faster which is great and gives you a 
starting hypothesis to think about things, but it doesn't totally, it doesn't help countries know what they should do now. And we were interested in a very practical problem of, you know, I was teed off by Michael talking to, to some, when I actually happened to be with him in, in Kenya, you know, a, an old friend of his, his said, well, I've started working for an NGO. We're providing money to schools. We don't really know what of these possible things we could do is the best thing. You know, the very practical problem. What do I do now? What's going to have the biggest impact? You should mention here that by Michael, you refer, you're referring to Michael Kramer. <laughs> yes, Michael Kramer, I'm married to and helped stop um, doing randomized trials. So he was bringing me to visit his his sort of second family, the family that he lived with for a long time in rural Kenya. So we started being serious relationship and he wanted me to come and see his family. <laughs> anyway, that started off uh, in that process. He met this old headmaster, somebody who'd been a headmaster of the local school and was was facing this challenge of what do I do? So it's really about answering very practical problems. And hearing you talk about your perspective on RCTs, it reminds me of Anders Deaton's critique, actually, because he says some some researchers maybe put too much faith in, in RCTs, that it doesn't, randomization does not equalize everything, and that these should be seen as part of a larger cumulative program, right? But why do you think, Rachel, there's so much criticism of the RCTs. Why are all of these misunderstandings continuously being articulated, if there are misunderstandings at all? So I guess I would say in the academic community now, there is no debate about RCTs. In the academic development community, you know, with a very, very few exceptions, but the main body of academics now see it as a tool along with lots of other tools, it's just become one of the tools set of economists. Nobody thinks of it as the be all end and end all. Nobody thinks that it doesn't have a place. There's pretty much no debate. The heterodox economists perhaps are more critical. Yeah. So some, you know, as I say, there are some economists who who still have who still have issues. Whenever I see an article criticizing RCTs, it sets out a position which none of us ever advocated. It, I just don't recognize. I saw something recently with people, you know, saying that foreigners should provide the advice on global evidence and, you know, local people should then think about how to, I no, never did I ever, it uses words that come from a paper and it, it completely misinterprets what they say. So I don't know whether this is a misunderstanding. I don't know whether it's a deliberate misunderstanding, but I don't recognize the things that are criticized I often don't recognize at all. Now, at the beginning, there were issues that people raised. You should be doing, you know, the Deaton raised. You should be doing this on bigger samples. You should be better at doing your randomization. You know, some of the methods we learned a huge amount in the process about doing better, bigger sample sizes and, you know, and the mechanics of how you randomize. So there's been a lot of improvement. I think part of what some of the criticism is about is actually measurement. It's just, you know, we don't think you're measuring this well. And that's not an RCT thing. It's an absolutely valid point of discussion. 
of are we picking an outcome that actually is about people's, you know, that properly represents people's lives. You know, when we look at women's empowerment, how do you measure that? How do you measure corruption? How do you, these are really difficult problems. And I think the RCT community, the people who do RCTs have really delved into trying to solve them. They recognize they're challenging and recognize that if you have a bad measure of an outcome, you know, you don't, you have a bad study. And so fixing that is really important. And again, there's been a huge amount of work on that. That's not just randomized trials. It's, you know, whenever you try and put a measure, people would say, how can you put a number on women's impairment? And, you know, Esther's paper showing that providing, reserving a third of villages in India to be run by women's leaders and thought a lot about how do you measure whether that made a difference on people's lives in a very practical way, I think answered a lot of those questions. And I've done a lot of work on how do you measure women's empowerment? And it's very difficult and it's quite difficult to do. And so I think that was where a lot of the challenges, and they were great challenges, but they're not about RCTs. They're about bringing quantitative science into things. And qualitative researchers were like, whoa, this is our space. <laughs> You're coming in here, you don't know what you're doing. Like, and that was more of a qualitative, quantitative argument. There's something else I wanted to raise here, Rachel, and that has to do with our obsession sometimes with trying to generalize results. So the generalizability puzzle that I know that you've also been interested in, whether a specific program can be generalized to other contexts. And there, there are lots of issues here, right? Whether whether we should just focus on one location and how, how you know, whether that can be replicated elsewhere, whether the data is good enough where we're doing this study and whether we should um, try to uh, do a randomized evaluation at a particular location before scaling up, how many times we should do that, all of this, right? So how best can we generalize research findings? That's what we all want to do. We don't want to just do a case study. So how can we best generalize from one context and apply these to another? What are the issues that we should be thinking about? I think this is a big challenge. It's one of the challenges that I faced a lot when I was working in government and the economists that I was working with. And I think it's often the case that people fall into a very simplistic way of thinking about generalizability. So I would constantly be asked, how many RCTs in how many countries do you need before you know that this generalizes? Yeah. And I wrote a paper called The Generalizability Puzzle to say, that's the wrong question. You should not be answering that. That is not a, the right question to ask. Let me try and explain why I think it's the wrong question. It's very rarely the case that you want to take a program exactly as it was implemented in one country, or one context, and you can just lift it lock, stock and barrel and apply it somewhere else. But it's not if you've done it more times that you can do that. Like that, doesn't, that doesn't solve the problem. So let's just think about what is different about context. What are we trying to do? Let's break the question down into separate parts, mm -hmm. right? One part is, is the problem the same in different places? As we talked about at the beginning, 
you know, in one country, the problem might be we don't have girls going to school. In another pro country, the problem might be that girls are in school but not learning very well. Girls and boys are in school, but they're not learning well. In other case, boys might not be going to school. So obviously, the same program is unlikely to solve those different issues. So you've got to, that's one of the things you've got to think about is what's the problem? That's the first diagnosis. What is the problem in this context? And then you can look at the evidence of lots of different RCTs where people have been trying to solve that particular problem. And you can try and draw from those RCTs some more general lessons. I'll give you an example. Again, I, maybe we can stick to the same example of, of education just because we've been talking about it so far. If you do have a problem of getting kids in school, there are many different studies that have suggested that reducing the cost of going to school is quite an effective way of getting kids in school in lots of different contexts. Now, you can reduce the cost in many different ways. You can provide school feeding, and therefore you're reducing the cost of feeding the child. You can provide a free school uniform. You can provide a conditional cash transfer. Those are all making it more financially possible to send a child to school. And all of those work. So it's not, I'm not taking a program, I'm taking a concept. And that concept, that behavioral regularity that people are actually quite responsive. They're more likely to send their kids. It's quite elastic. Like going to school is quite elastic. It's quite responsive to small changes in price. That holds up in a lot of different contexts. How you want to reduce the costs of going to school in any particular context are going to be very different. If I'm in a, in a situation where there's school fees, get rid of school fees. If I'm in a situation where there aren't school uniforms, well, giving free school uniforms is not going to solve the problem, right? And sometimes teachers don't show up at school. So, so just making sure that they actually are there, right? So you can have teachers right. who are not there. And I've seen this in India. I've seen this in, in, in rural India. I've been thinking about doing this also in my own classes, getting the, the, the best student in class to do the teaching while I'm um, relaxing somewhere else. So <laughs> Yeah, but that's a different problem. And then you need to look at a different set of studies. You know, if you think the kids aren't going to school because there isn't a teacher, then you've got to look at a different set of what's the, what are the different effective ways of solving that. And sometimes you could actually hire short-term teachers, right? Some studies show that you could supplement the civil service teachers with, with short-term to, to, to improve their performance. But I've also seen this... Um, I think there was a study in Pakistan about, um, you know, making parents aware of other alternatives. If you're really trying to improve educational outcomes for children, make them aware that there's also a private school available. And, and maybe this will help in terms of reducing the fees for the private schools, but also improve performance in the public schools. It could also be just telling, uh, telling parents, you know, here's some money, you know, send your children to a better school. <laughs> you know, so there are, yeah. there, there are different ways. Is, is that how you see, like, you know, what is it that we should be thinking about, Rachel, in terms of improving educational outcomes? What, what is the evidence out there, according to all the studies that you've been doing? Yeah, so there, I would not say there's one, one thing across all of these. I think, I mean, I'm actually literally this week working with a panel of experts on trying to condense all of the evidence on education and try and give people a, 
you know, a menu of different things that might work. So, you know, getting kids in school, reducing the cost is very effective. Learning is, you know, improving learning of kids in school, improving the way that people teach is consistently one of the, the best ways to improve learning. And it's, you know, how do you do that? Well, one of the things is you want to make sure that you're teaching children at the level that they are. So very often in low and middle income countries, the curriculum is maybe two grades higher than the level that the children are at. And then they don't learn very much when, you know, if you can't read and you're being taught from a geography textbook about, you know, about how river sediment is, you know, <laughs> laid down, you know, they're not going to learn that because they can't read the textbook. So you've got to adjust the level of the child. I think, you know, there's increasing evidence that giving teachers some structure, not dictating everything they say, but giving them support in terms of, you know, potential lesson plans that they could pull on, that can be very effective. Mentoring and support for teachers is very effective. Now, the teacher absenteeism problem that you raised is a big problem. And frankly, I don't think we've got brilliant solutions to that. I mean, there's individual things that have worked. I think these having the contract teachers that you mentioned as a pathway into teaching. So you don't immediately get a lifetime tenure job as a teacher without ever having taught in a classroom. You have some kind of apprenticeship period where you should be afraid of losing your job. Yeah. I mean, at least for at least initially, right? At least you want to do some testing of the teachers before you give them <laughs> a permanent contract. This doesn't really work to have very few places have them on contract forever, right? I don't that doesn't seem to be politically possible, even if the economics says that that threat of losing your job if you don't turn up is quite quite a good incentive. Politically, it doesn't, you can't do that for teachers forever. But I do think having that as an entryway in so that you're, you know, you can screen out some people who aren't very good at teaching or don't want to do teaching before you give them a lifetime contract is, that is very sensible. I read a paper, which I found fascinating, a paper you wrote with Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo on microfinance, because yes. that is something that, again, is often touted, Rachel, as one of these miracles. Microfinance is a solution, the magic bullet. There's been so much attention on this. And yet you did a study together with your co-authors in Hyderabad. Because there were all of these reports a few years ago about suicides and people who taken these loans, couldn't pay them back. But I understood that much of that evidence is very anecdotal. And then you guys did this study. And I found it interesting because it went against the grain in showing that, well, microfinance isn't that popular, that actually a lot of um, people choose to get a loan from other sources, not necessarily a microfinance institution. Another finding I, was that it was the big businesses that that made money. It wasn't really the small businesses, even though we think microfinance actually benefits small businesses, right? And then you mentioned empowerment early in the conversation. That is also something that one says that microfinance helps, right? Empowering women. And you did not find evidence for that. Yeah. When we started J-Power, it was one of the things top on our list because it was very popular there's a lot of discussion and the evidence was really not very good. So it was one of the areas where we felt like there was a real need for more evidence. I should say we tested microcredit 
I, you know, a lending, there's lots of other forms of microfinance right. um, out there, but this was microcredit with a more sort of standard Grameen style program. And the first point that you raised that a lot of people don't actually take it up is a good case of, of where just descriptive evidence can knock down what people thought. When we went around trying to set up this a study and we talked to lots of microcredit organizations to ask would they be willing to work with us in a in an evaluation, it was very common at that time to say we reach 80% of women in our areas. Lots of microcredit organizations would say that. One of the first findings was not related to the RCT, it's just actually about 20% of women, eligible women, take up microcredit. Except in, you know, there's some parts of Bangladesh where it's much higher, but in general, it's not every woman who wants to take it up. And that's quite interesting, as you say, on its own, and it really debunked a lot of the rhetoric, just with that pure descriptive statistic. So then, then we looked at, you know, it provided, worked with Spandana, who were, you know, to their credit, very open to being evaluated. They went and they picked 100 areas. We, you know, then they couldn't possibly go into 100 areas, so they picked half of them to go into. And we, so we were looking at what's the effect of the microcredit on the whole community, not just on the borrowers. And I think that's one of the reasons why the previous studies had given different results is that they were just looking at the borrowers and the borrowers are very different. If it's only 20% of the population who are taking it up, they are just, they may not look different, but their internal motivation is very different. And we found that people with already with businesses use the money to invest in businesses in their business and they got more assets people in the middle who didn't have businesses were more likely to open businesses and a bunch of people took the loan spent it on consumption and kind of potentially were worse off as a result maybe they weren't worse off but but it was a risky scenario we didn't find they were worse off we just found that they had more you know debt and they hadn't actually accumulated assets now, when you say that it was big businesses that benefited, I just want to correct you. We're not talking like 100 employees. No. We're probably but... not even talking about <laughs> yeah. many employees. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, women who had got established businesses. But you do see at the very kind of right tail, the very, you know, the best performing people do benefit from getting credit. The trick now, and a lot of research is going into that, how do you identify those women? Uh, there are some people who really benefit from microcredit, a lot of people who don't really <laughs> benefit much. They use it to, you know, tick over to buy to buy a telly when they would otherwise have saved up, so they get a little bit quicker, or some other durable, maybe not as big as a telly. But but there are a few people who really use it well in their business. But frankly, at the moment, we can't. We and microcredit organisations don't know how to identify who those people are so we can target them. But that's the real, the next stage. People are doing a lot of work on trying to target. Yeah, I, I think what is really interesting, Rachel, in this context is whether it is cash transfers, conditional cash transfers that work really well in Latin America, didn't always work well in India or in certain parts of the African continent. Similarly, with, with microcredit, it was seen to be the miracle in Bangladesh, 
it hasn't always worked elsewhere. So I think we're back to this generalizability problem that certain things work. And I mean, I, I like the original idea of microcredit that the bank is not giving me money. I don't have collateral. They don't trust me. I don't have the ability to pay back or whatever, but somebody else is willing to advance me a small loan. So th that in principle appears to be a very promising case. So how should we view microfinance, microcredit going forward? I mean, would you say that it works in some cases, as you were saying, that maybe to identify certain borrowers who can perhaps make better, make use of this these funds better than others? Is, so that is where the trick is? That is where the, 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 the big um, gap in the evidence is? So I think there's two different pieces here. One is, in general, for most people, yeah, they didn't have any access to formal finance. They had, uh, they were borrowing from money lenders, and a lot of them, even with the option of microcredit, continued to want to borrow from money lenders. That's an avenue for looking at. Why do they prefer borrowing from yes. money lenders? Right? But for most people, I'm not saying it's bad, it's just not transformative. We found it was helpful. It just didn't do all the things that microcredit so I think if we not raise such high expectations for it being transformative and ending poverty, you know, I think part of the lesson is let's not oversell things to start with. It's a perfectly good approach. It's appropriate that people have access to credit. It's good that people can buy durables. That's all fine. Just don't pretend that it's changing, you know, that it's, you know, let's not say that it transforms women's empowerment or is the end solution to the end of poverty. No, it's a useful tool, but it's not transformative. Then the potentially transformative bit is if you can get credit to those really entrepreneurial people. Right? Not everybody should be an entrepreneur. Not that, not everyone's good at being an entrepreneur, but there are entrepreneurial people in amongst the poor and they do have problems getting credit. Yeah. So we got to find those people, we've got to get money to them, some of the more successful programs have given very large amounts of money to a very small number of people. And so it's just identifying them, which is the challenge. So I think there's two different routes. One is making sure, you know, everybody has some ability to borrow and save and it's not going to be transformative, but it, you know, we all need that. And then there's, if you want to actually see businesses grow and employ people, and it's about targeting. And that's probably not microcredit that does that targeting. What about something else that is, according to conventional wisdom, seen to be extremely important development? That is the role of people participating in development. Right. So to consult people, to not exclude them, to include them, to give everybody a voice. This is important for accountability, for monitoring, for efficiency, all of that. So you want to avoid this kind of heavy top down designed intervention. You want to base it on local needs, local perspectives and involve the local community. And yet I know that you've also studied how this works um, in India, I think. Oh, well, both. I've done some in India and some in Syria. Because one of the studies I've read is that you don't really find that participation really helps much. It is, it's not like citizens don't want to influence public policy. It's just that participation alone is not enough. 
there are many other constraints. Yeah, so this is an area where, you know, very, you have to really understand the context and what participation in what. Mm. Uh, so we absolutely wouldn't say, you know, participation doesn't work. I'd say it's a challenge. So we looked in India at local school boards and local village education committees, which are mandated in India and trying to get them working better, providing them information, providing them tools about how to do, you know, challenge more, nothing. And this was a project working with Pratham, who, you know, pretty much everything else they've done has been spectacularly effective. They really put their heart and soul into trying to make this work. And what they ended up doing, though, that was successful, is getting local people to teach children in their community. And that was extremely successful. What was unsuccessful was trying to get lo the local community to influence the local school. We don't know this for sure, but, you know, having spent a bunch of time on the ground, I think, you know, and people in, in, who work in India know that caste is a huge problem and power dynamics in a village are a huge problem. It was not, you know, I think that makes it really hard for, you know, lower class people to go challenge the teacher and say, you're not showing up and we want you to show up and that sort of thing. Like it's, it's very hard to get the dynamics going. There's been a lot of different studies on this kind of local boards to run clinic or to advise on clinics or be part of clinics or schools. And where it's worked better, they've had a more formal role, right? So these community boards on schools worked better in Kenya where they were then linked to the district offices so they could go to the district and say well we're having problems and then I've done work on democracy and how do you empower people to be more connected to their politicians and if you think about it in rich countries that's how we do our participation you know how we influence service delivery we influence it through the formal systems of we vote and we can vote people out and there was huge enthusiasm of people to go see their parliamentarian debate. And, you know, there's Leonard Wanchikon has done a lot of work on this. So getting people involved in the formal accountability system has, has been much or, or have some formal element to it. So they have some actual power. You've got to really understand the power dynamics yeah. in these communities. You can't just say, Oh, you know, we're going to put you on a, on the invent some committee and put you on some committee and ignore the history of power dynamics in these communities. Uh, that's why local knowledge is important. You need to really do the homework, right? And to know. But another area where, you know, how we sort of are, one of the important channels we have in our societies, Rachel, is the media is we we create a lot of noise. We, we write op-eds or, you know, at least some of us do. We complain. And the media is an important tool there. And I wanted to um, ask you this because you mentioned earlier that certain things are difficult to measure, certain aspects. And I think measuring the impact of mass media is one of those because it spreads information. We think that the media is always spreading vital, crucial, important information, but it could be dis disinformation. You don't even know whether it has an impact. And I know you did an RCT in Burkina Faso on this. 
provided a group with radios and you compared this in relation to, a, a, I think, a several year program for family planning, etc. So tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure my listeners would be really interested in understanding how you studied the impact of the media. Yeah, so it's very challenging to look at media and we're not the only people who do it. You know, people have looked at it in Rwanda where obviously there was huge negative effects of or spewing hate through the radio. But what we did is look, because in Burkina Faso, a lot of people are too poor to have a radio. Normally you can't randomize where, where mass media comes. Like it's, it's mass, it's everywhere. So it's very hard to get look at, there's no control group. So we had two, two ways of looking at this in Burkina Faso. One is we gave some women radios and they were solar powered, so they don't have to buy batteries gave some women who didn't have radios radios and then we also randomized where which community radio stations had a mass media program pro or telling people about family planning you could do that in Burkina Faso because people don't listen to the national radio because the national radio is in French pretty much no one in rural Burkina Faso speaks French well enough to listen to the radio in French so you have these very, very local community radio stations, and we picked 16 and eight of them got the program and eight of them didn't. And then within the, within the area of the radio station, some people got given a radio and some people didn't. With that design, you can look at both in the control areas, what's the benefit of getting a radio when there is no family planning campaign, and also what's the impact of the family planning campaign. So much to our surprise in, in the control areas, we found that there was people use contraception less. And all the previous work had suggested that, you know, linking up rural communities to mass media reduces, increases contraception use and reduces family size. Why? Because they see these urban families or they hear about kind of what's normal in rich urban areas and the rich urban areas tend to have fewer children. But in this case, we were linking them up to their own community where contraception was not very common. And therefore the few people who were using contraception, we hypothesized were a bit more under pressure to follow community norms and not use it. Whereas in the areas where there was this mass media program, people increased contraception use. And so if you're given a radio, there you actually increase contraception use and the reason we you know we looked at kind of the why and we found who was it who was increasing well it was people who wanted who didn't want to have another child but weren't using contraception and it was people who had used contraception in the past and there was a big decline in people thinking that contraception might might cause serious negative side effects like infertility so we think the main thing that it did is address misconceptions that were that are quite common around the world about about family planning being dangerous. And so if you want to not have children, but you aren't using contraception because you're worried it's going to make you infertile, then this program was very effective at addressing. It didn't change people who still wanted to have six kids, which is the average in Burkina Faso. I know that you're interested in childhood immunization and global health issues. You've been working on the costs and benefits of, of preparing for future pandemics. 
in relation to malaria, something that I, you know, I find quite interesting now we're seeing the huge success of the malaria vaccine, but it has taken, what, three decades to get here. I mean, I don't know if you worked on this specifically, but what do you think we should have been doing three decades ago? Why did it take such a long time? I'm seeing some really impressive results from Kenya, Malawi, Ghana, and all of this, right? For me, it was just this very simple thing that we should have done a long time ago. I'm glad we're doing it now, but so what happened? Yeah, so I wrote a book, I think maybe almost three decades ago. I haven't read that. Okay, saying what we ought to do to try and get more money into malaria vaccines. So we are advocating exactly this, getting more money into malaria vaccines. So some people will tell you, well, we didn't get it for a long time because it was a hard scientific problem. And it was a hard scientific problem. I won't go into the technicalities, but it's harder to do a malaria vaccine than some other vaccine. But given the burden, the global burden, given how many people are getting malaria, how many people were dying of it, we just weren't putting in a commensurate number of resources. And so what we advocated, you know, a long time ago was that the donor should commit to buy a malaria vaccine if it was invented at a very large scale. So that there was at least people understood that there was, um, you know, a market for this and they could go to the financial markets and raise money. Because what we did is we put small grants, we gave small grants to specific researchers to work on this. Well, that was, you know, we being donors and, you know, private donors and government donors. But that means we, you know, we're picking who's the best person to work on it. We're judging what's the most scientifically likely way to get to this. And I think a much better way to stimulate stimulate a malaria vaccine and might have got there faster was to, you know, put up a big amount of money and say, we as a global community will buy, you know, X million doses and millions would have been very large to do you know, if you can come up with a malaria vaccine and then anybody around the world who might have a good idea but wasn't able to get funding or, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies, the biotech companies who weren't paying attention to it because, you know, frankly, there's just much more money in solving a health problem that affects rich people in rich countries. There's not much of a market for solving a problem that affects poor people and therefore they're not going to pay very much. Your role as chief economist, you you were the former chief economist of DFID, FCDO. And I'm interested, Rachel, in understanding how it was for you to to first generate solid evidence and then to sell it to your colleagues, policymakers, but also politicians. And I'm particularly interested because I, I have this new project now trying to understand how the evidence, you know, on climate change, on sustainable development is filtered through the the cognitive abilities of politicians. How do they actually understand the evidence and then how do they act upon it? So I want you to, you know, if you can share some nuggets of information about what you found, you know, helped you to sell your ideas to policymakers and politicians. And what is it that we should be talking about that rings a bell and somehow mobilizes political action? Uh, It's a great question. I could have done the whole podcast on this. (laughs) So first of all, it was just fascinating to to do that jump. 
I, when I first joined, you know, I joined DFID, I went there because they already believed a lot in evidence, they knew a lot of the evidence. So in some ways, it was much easier than in some other policy environments that I've been working with. I've mainly been working with developing country politicians up to that point, you know, some of whom are very into the evidence and some of whom know less about it. So one of the key things I worked on when I was in government was this point that we've just, that we talked about, the generalizability point. Because I think too often people were talking about the evidence in terms of this program, and we'll take this program lock, stock, and barrel to another country, and then there'll be pushback. So one of the things that I worked on a lot is, okay, what are some of the principles? What are some of the behavioral things that do? And getting the organization to work. So we did analysis of the problem in the country. We provided, we centrally provided some guidance on what are the the general lessons in a given area. And I think, and then those, and then when you're talking to high level politicians, they don't want to be in the details. So if you can then pitch those general points, they're much more engaged. And the final point is that I found is quite specific, but it's really important, is providing them with an, a way of thinking about the outcome that they can get. So again, let's go back to education. The standard way of presenting educational results is that, you know, the cost effectiveness we talked about is, you know, for $100, you can get X standard deviation improvement in outcomes. Immediate glaze over <laughs> policy. So I was, I worked, the World Bank had done a lot of this work, the macro level, but I worked with the team to look at the micro level. So we could say this kind of program provides $5 of high quality education, by which I mean equivalent to what Singapore and Finland are doing. For $100, you can get $5 of Singaporean equivalent education. And I literally saw, you know, my permanent secretary sit bolt upright <laughs> with that. And it was just, I mean, he's got to cover, you know, so many different sectors and so many different challenges. You've got to cut through with something that is easy to understand and see what the real impact would be on lives, but make sure it's incredibly evidence-based. So because politicians are dealing with so much, people tend to give them very general lessons that aren't concrete. So you've got to A, make it general in the sense of, I'm summarizing that, you know, improving the pedagogy or teaching at the right level, which is already summarizing, you know, 20 different studies, right? But it's something they can grasp, but then put it in an outcome that they can really visualize. That's why they like the X number of, that's why they like programs that get girls in school, because you can say, you know, we got X number of girls in school. But you've got to, you've got to take, you've got to do that, but for something that's more complex and complicated, but turn it into the equivalent of saying X number of girls in school. Because Otherwise, they'll want to do the number of girls in school, even in countries where the girls are in school. Right? Yeah. So you've got to give them something else that is very tangible that they can hang on to, under which there is a huge amount of evidence and rigor and understanding the context. So the trick is to keep it in line with the evidence, but put it in a nugget that they can understand. I really enjoyed our chat today, Rachel. Thanks so much for coming on my show. It was great fun. Great to talk to you.
If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo's Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.